Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 59, When Peace Won't Come. Now, first, as always, I want to thank our newest Patreon supporters. That would be Helen Towers and Nibosia Milosavljevic. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. If not, sorry about that. It's a tricky one. So, besides thanking our newest Patreon supporters, as always, I wanted to make a pretty big announcement for the podcast. So, for years, I've had this idea of taking a lot of the content that I've written for this podcast and reworking it and adding to it and trying to turn it into a book. Because, honestly, the last time someone wrote a book solely about, say, the First Bulgarian Empire in English was 1930, Stephen S. Runciman. So, it's been a while, right? And the, the several books I have about, you know, all of Bulgarian history in English cover the First Bulgarian Empire in, like, five pages, you, you, most those of you who've listened this far know that you know it, it took us about well to count from words seventy thousand words. You know that's about what a hundred forty pages to cover the first Bulgarian Empire, and these books do it in like five. So you know I always thought there was a big gap there, and there was a lot of value to be added. And I wanted people who came to Bulgaria to have a, an accessible way to learn about this amazing history that all of you have been listening to for however long. So I've now kind of made a deal with the publisher and you know I'm starting to work on this. I don't want to give too many details early on, but it's an ongoing thing. But don't worry, that doesn't mean I'm going to kind of take away from the podcast. I'm still going to do two episodes a month. I'm still trying to catch up on all other podcast matters, but it just means I'm kind of working extra hard. But in the future, uh, hopefully I'm when I get that done, it's I'm hoping to make it like a Patreon thing so my biggest supporters can get a free copy, you know, signed, whatever you want, of the book. And for everyone else, it should be just a really cool uh, uh, addition to the podcast. I, I really am rewriting stuff. I'm doing new research. I'm adding to it. I'm trying to make it something really special. And hopefully in the future, tourists and, and foreigners, all kinds of people who come to Bulgaria, want to learn more about Bulgaria, will have this book that's written in a language they can understand, that tells the stories in a way that is accessible and engaging and interesting while not being fictional, let's say. Okay, so enough about that announcement. Let's get into the episode. So last time, we concluded the Ottoman Civil War as Mehmet I finally killed or exiled all of his brothers to become the sole sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Following that, a defeat of the Hungarians in Bosnia in 1414 reversed all the gains that state had made in the Balkans while the Ottomans had been distracted and set the stage for Ottoman domination in Bosnia. Now, peace has returned to the Balkans. The Ottomans are on good terms with the Serbians, the Byzantines, the Hungarians. Wallachia still controlled uh, what had been Ottoman Dobruja, but was forced to give the Ottomans 3,000 gold pieces a year for their continued independence. But, honestly, Mehmet I doesn't seem too concerned about that for now. His focus 
is on getting the Empire back on track by fixing its internal problems before he can return to thoughts of big expansion. Now, there is one exception to that, and that's Albania, where many Ottoman vassals had left the Empire and become Venetian vassals after the Battle of Ankara and during the Ottoman Civil War. The region had seen warfare and internal strife for much of the last decade, and while he had no interest in expanding elsewhere, Mehmet saw Albania as an exception, and therefore attacked fortresses there during the early years of his reign. But overall, Mehmet already made peace with his neighbors in Europe, though Anatolia was still being ravaged, and the death of Timur nine years previously didn't mean that the dangers from the east and his uh, successors weren't over. So there was still danger over there, but Overall, Mehmet could really focus on his internal tasks for the time being. But before we get to that, we need to cover the earlier life of a man who would do more than anyone to make Mehmet's goals of bringing order back to Ottoman lands, let's say, difficult. Sheikh Bedreddin, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Bedreddin, was born to a Christian mother and a Muslim father near Edirne in 1359, all the way back when Ivan Alexander's two families and many children were breaking the Second Empire apart, and just after the Ottomans made their first foray into Europe under Sultan Orhan. Bedreddin studied in Cairo and Konya, Konya's in Anatolia, before eventually traveling to the Timurid Empire and encountering the Safavid Order, an organization of Islamic mystics. The culmination of the Islamic teachings he acquired in the Ottoman, Mamluk, and Timurid empires, along with his growing up with Christian and Muslim parents in a very religiously mixed community, all this culminated in a unique vision of religion itself. This vision was a religion based on God's oneness of being. This meant that the divisions between social classes and between the monotheistic religions were, according to him, artificial and against the will of God. This meant that Bedreddin, his beliefs and his teachings were extremely subversive. They undermined the Ottoman social order. Obviously, being against social class is going to undermine any social order, pretty much any state at this time. As well, this also kind of undermined Ottoman attempts to make a single version of Sunni Islam, the state religion, and a unifying force within the Ottoman Empire. Now, these beliefs were already well developed by the time the Ottoman civil wars came around. During that period, he served under the, as the main Qadi, which is a kind of Islamic judge, in the army of Musa. You'll remember Musa, one of the sons of Bayezid. Now, Presumably, Musa was aware of his Qadi's beliefs, which made this arrangement a bit odd to me. I mean, to, to bring in someone that's that subversive uh, in such a prominent position. But evidently, Musa had a bit of a revolutionary tinge to him. And so as far as we know, he was fully aware of his Qadi's beliefs and brought the guy in anyways. But as we also know, Musa's attempts to take over the Ottoman Empire fail and he's killed. So, unsurprisingly, due to his high position in Musa's army, Bedreddin was exiled to Iznik, a city in Anatolia near the Sea of Marmara. 
However, just two years after the end of the Civil War, Bedreddin escaped first to Senop on the Black Sea, and then by boat to Wallachia, where, I'll briefly mention, right at this moment, Merkea I's son Michael was becoming co-ruler as his father was getting quite old. Now, within months, Sheikh Bedreddin had started a full rebellion against Mehmet, who had just finished putting down the last rebellion literally months earlier. The revolt began in the regions where Bedreddin had had the most influence, along the Aegean coast of Anatolia and in Dobruja. The participants ranged widely, from Sipahis, Ottoman feudal landholders who made up the Ottoman cavalry. Now, you probably wonder why they're in favor of this revolutionary guy who wants to upset the Ottoman order. Well, these were the Sipahis who had lost in the Civil War and therefore were, you know, not looking, their, their future wasn't looking great, so they were willing to back a revolutionary. The revolution was also backed by religious students who were attracted by the religious message of the revolt, as well as by Turkmen nomads who were attracted to the ideas of common ownership of property. And lastly, this whole revolution was very attractive to Christian peasants who were drawn to the idea of equality between Christianity and Islam within the Ottoman Empire. So, as you can see, this revolt meant many things to many different groups. Some formerly powerful nobles saw it as a chance to return to prominence in spite of the revolt's communal ideals. Other groups saw it as an attack, or saw it as an attack on kind of strict Sunni Islam and, and appealing to their idealism. Others were poor and dispossessed groups who were attracted by the equality. And Bethreden, well, he put together quite a coalition. And as a result, this revolt lasted for four long years as Mehmet rushed around his empire, brutally putting down each individual rebellion with great bloodshed. One by one, every rebel leader was captured and killed until finally, in 1420, it came to Bedreddin himself. The rebel leader was taken to the Greek city of Ceres and publicly executed. Beyond being one in a long list of civil war and rebellions during these decades, which caused many problems for the Ottomans, this also signaled a major mindset shift for them. Now, the relationship between the Ottoman Empire and Islam is a complex one, which we're go is going to evolve a lot over the life of the empire, and we're going to discuss it as it evolves. But early on, like most Central Asian nomadic groups who converted to Islam, the Ottomans just weren't particularly religious or puritanical. In all their conquests and treaties so far, religious conversion hasn't really been a requirement. Christians have fought alongside Muslims in Ottoman armies. But the rebellion of Bedreddin taught Mehmet the danger of religious pluralism and leniency. Now, all of this should sound very familiar to those of you who remember the impact of the Bogomils on the First Bulgarian Empire. By the way, in spite of efforts to suppress them, they remained popular until about the fall of the Second Bulgarian Empire. So the Bogomils only kind of got out of the picture quite recently in our story. But in both cases, you really have a state which adopts an official religion but doesn't take it super seriously. Then, in response to difficult social conditions, a movement arises which uses a version of that religion to quote-unquote correct all these conditions, leading to a rebellion, and in the Ottoman case, a disruptive separating from society in the case of the Bulgarians. 
So in both cases, the central governments fought hard and long to suppress these ideas and subsequently became much more strict in their religious doctrine. And so, similarly to what occurred in Bulgaria after the arrival of the Bogomils, at this point, the Ottoman Empire will become decidedly less tolerant of both non-Muslims and other forms of Islam. One expression of this was the fact that Mehmet's successor as Sultan will soon expand the Janissaries to both boost the military power of the Sultan and increase conversions to Islam from Christianity. Now lastly, also similar to the Bulgamils, versions of Bedreddin's teachings will last in the Ottoman Empire for centuries. In fact, he will later become an icon of Turkish socialists and anti-fascists in the 20th century. But obviously that's a little ahead. So while all this was going on, the Wallachians began to refuse to give the Ottomans that annual tribute I mentioned earlier. As a result, in 1417, Mehmet invaded Wallachia and captured the sons of Merkeia I, its king. Well, okay, sorry, not king, he's uh, the voivoda. Now, while all this was happening, Merkeia finally died, and so his son Michael took over the state and continued the fight against the Ottomans. Concerned that Wallachia would come back uh, under further Ottoman control, Sigismund of Hungary intervened in 1419, pushing the Ottomans back. But the war dragged on, with a young Michael dying in an Ottoman attack in 1420. But by this point, the two of Michael's sons had also become Ottoman captives. And so, the Ottomans placed his son Radu II, who was their prisoner, on the throne, ensuring their control over Wallachia through him. But, as you can imagine, many Wallachians weren't just about to let this guy take over, and so Michael's cousin, Dan, began gathering nobles to successfully make himself the leader in Wallachia. Now, this seems like a good moment to mention a very strange circumstance in Serbia that actually connects directly to this conflict in Wallachia. See, you probably remember that Stefan Lazarevich had been switching from being an Ottoman to a Hungarian vassal for a couple years now. Well, following the Ottoman Civil War, he somehow managed to become both at the same time. Even stranger, both sides seemed pretty okay with that arrangement. Now, this is all the more odd because at moments like this in Wallachia, the Hungarians and the Ottomans were literally fighting and killing each other. Now, I don't have a great explanation for how the situation managed to occur where the Hungarians and the Ottomans don't are kind of okay with this situation, but my best guess is that both of them just didn't want to rock the boat. You know, they were both okay with their relationship with Stefan and the Serbians, and so even if this was all a bit awkward, eh, they'll deal with that later. And so by 1421, Dan II is now on the throne in Wallachia. He succeeded in kind of helping to push out the Ottomans and defeat their candidate, Radu II. But in the meantime, Mehmet I dies at the age of just 42. Now, there's no mention of foul play, so it seems he did die of uh, natural causes. But still, it meant that the man who had fought so long and so hard to become the sole ruler of the Ottoman Empire only managed to spend eight years on the throne after fighting that rebellion and winning war after war to return the empire to what it had been before the Civil War. And so, after all this, after achieving so much, he was dead. Now, 
His 16-year-old son, Murad, became the sixth Ottoman Sultan, Murad II. But of course, with all this instability going on, and only one year after the final suppression of Badreddin's revolt, this meant that his ascension looked like a golden opportunity for lots of people. One among them, the Sultan's uncle and the last remaining son of Bayezid, living in exile in Lemnos, in the Aegean Sea, Mustafa. And so Mustafa sprung into action, collaborating with the Byzantines to capture a fort which dominated the Dardanelles, restricting the young Murad II's ability to move troops between the Balkans and Anatolia. Soon, Mustafa captured the Ottoman capital of Edirne. Murad II was in the unofficial second capital, Bursa. And from there, he began to rule the Ottoman Balkans as local rulers flocked to him. Murad scrambled to gather an army and get it to Europe as quickly as possible to challenge his uncle. While he succeeded in getting an army across, it only joined Mustafa. Now, unsurprisingly, Mustafa at this moment begins to think that the war is won, and so he embarked across the Dardanelles to invade Anatolia and complete his conquest and defeat his nephew. However, Mustafa overplayed his hand, not militarily, but politically. His position in the Balkans was not as secure as he believed, and the moment he left his enemies there encouraged nobles to switch sides. In response, Mustafa was forced to rush back to Edzirne to re-exert control, all with Murad's army at his heels. Along the way, he had to pay an immense sum to the Genoese to transport his army back to Europe. Soon after, Murad caught up with his uncle and captured him. And so, in 1422, Mustafa was publicly hanged. Now, this was an unusual method of execution for a member of the Ottoman royal family, but Murad saw Mustafa as an imposter and wished to make an example of him. And so Murad, now 17, was secure on his throne. But Mustafa's wasn't the only important death that year. Around that same time, Constantine II died in Belgrade. His death marked the passing of the last Bulgarian Tsar for centuries. Now we know nothing about whether he had any children, and so with his death, as far as we know, Frujin became the last remaining member of the Bulgarian royal family. Remember, at this point, he's living in the Hungarian capital of Buda. During the short reign of Mehmet, he had been on good terms with the Byzantines. I mentioned how they supported him during the Civil War, but obviously their support for Mustafa against Murad II changed all of that. As such, right from the start of the Sultan's rule, all bets were off between the Ottomans and the Byzantines. The treaties were torn up, and the Ottomans prepared to go on the offensive. In fact, Murad II went on the offensive all over after finishing his uncle off. To begin, he laid siege to Constantinople in 1421. That following year, the Ottomans had to lift the siege though, as Emperor Manuel II left the city for the Hungarian capital of Buda. He gave up all his duties and allowed his son, John VIII, to rule. In Buda, Manuel hoped to convince Sigismund to launch a new war against the Ottomans. But Sigismund was too occupied with the Hussite Wars, which were happening at the time in Bohemia. Because remember, Sigismund was also king of Bohemia, king of Germany. Really, he was very good at collecting titles. So, 
By 1423, the Ottomans were also raiding deep into Greece. They were invading Wallachia to fight Dan II and install Radu to rule that country. They're still fighting that battle. And now while Dan II defeated them, the Ottomans would continue to raid Wallachia regularly for three more years. Meanwhile, fearing it couldn't defend Thessaloniki against the Ottomans, the Byzantines gave it to the Venetians, a true sign of how far they've fallen. Right? A Byzantine Empire is going to the Hungarian capital to beg for help, and they're selling uh, one of their second most important city to the Venetians. But what were they going to do? By 1424, Emperor Manuel returned from Buda empty-handed. Knowing no help was coming, the Byzantines, well, they had enough, and they agreed to become vassals of the Ottomans once again. Of course, the Ottomans kept up their attacks on Thessaloniki because, well, now it belonged to the Venetians. But at least the pressure on Constantinople was off. The next year, in 1425, Manuel II died and was finally, fully, formally succeeded by his son, John VIII. Meanwhile, though, pressure remained on Wallachia. In 1425, Dan II won another battle against the Ottomans, but it wasn't enough to stop them. That same year, the Wallachians and the Hungarians raided Vidin, Oryakovo, and Silistra along the Danube, along with the last known member of the Bulgarian royal family, Fruzhin. He was along for the ride to help. Now, in light of his contributions, Sigismund decided to make Fruzhin a Hungarian noble, giving him a county to run and some land. But still, back to the story, that, that raid against the Ottomans was not nearly enough to deter them from continuing to attack Wallachia. Only the next year, when Sigismund personally intervened and a joint Hungarian and Wallachian army won a major victory against the Ottomans, did they give up on their attempts to install Radu as Voivoda in Wallachia. Also, remember how I mentioned that inherent awkwardness between Stefan Lazarevich's dual loyalties to the Hungarians and the Ottomans? Well, right when the Ottomans and Hungarians were clashing in Wallachia, it, well, it finally became too much. The Ottomans were concerned about Stefan getting too close to Sigismund, and so they invaded. The Hungarians backed Stefan up, and an agreement was signed which saw the Ottomans withdraw. But Stefan was 50 by this time. It seems like he's been around for ages, right? He's been a continual character in our story for many, many episodes. He was at the Battle of Kosovo, the Battle of Ankara, a major participant in the Ottoman Civil War. He's really a defining character of this era. And so, in light of his age, Stefan was justifiably very concerned about who would succeed him, and that this succession be smooth and well-defined beforehand. Obviously, the combination of many powerful lords in Serbia, along with the potential for the Ottomans and Hungarians to get involved, meant that the potential for disaster, should Stefan die without an heir, was very high. And so, he made the tough choice of naming his nephew, George Brankovic, son of Vuk Brankovic, who, if you remember, abandoned Stefan at the Battle of Kosovo, maybe for good reasons, maybe not. And so you can imagine this is a bit of an odd choice. These two had fought for a long time before finally coming to peace in 1411. But George was powerful, and Sigismund wanted a powerful man to succeed him. So the choice is made. And... Not a moment too soon, because shortly after repelling that Ottoman invasion and deciding on his own successor, Stefan Lazarevich finally died 
in July of 1427. As I mentioned, he had been a tremendously important figure for Balkan history, ruling in some capacity in Serbia for 38 years. I'll borrow an extended quote from John Fine, who does a great job of describing the man Stefan was. By Now, the quote is from a man of Bulgarian origin called Konstantin the Philosopher. But, as I mentioned, it comes from John Fine. Quote, Constantine the Philosopher's biography stresses Stefan's knightly prowess and ability as a military leader over all his other qualities. He fought, as has been seen, in a considerable number of major battles. His armies did well, and even in defeat, never suffered devastating losses. Like his contemporaries, Stefan also held tournaments at his own court, and knightly poetry and tales were popular there. But Constantine the Philosopher notes that Despite this lively knightly side to his character, and despite his active patronage of art and literature, Stefan's court was modest and puritanical. The despot would tolerate no rowdy behavior, raucous laughter, stamping, and shouting. He also disliked popular music, considering it to be somewhat immoral, so he banned it from his court, allowing only martial music when needed for battle order. He also, his biographer informs us, did not pursue women. Now, Constantine the Philosopher describes the wild grief and great mourning of the Serbian population at the death of Stefan. Besides his political role, Stefan had been very active culturally. He built several monasteries, including the spectacular fortified monastery of Rsava. The monastery, begun in 1407, according to Constantine, was built specifically as a center for Hesychas, not sure how to pronounce this group, showing the ruler held them in great honor. He endowed their Sava generously with books and icons. The period was important for having a greater variety of literary genres than any other earlier period in Serbian history. During Stefan's reign, Serbia enjoyed a literary revival, spurred on by the various Bulgarian and Greek emigres who had fled to their homeland after Ottoman occupation. This revival produced both translations from Greek and original works, end quote. So, with the death of Stefan, George Brankovic became the new despot of Serbia. Right away, he had concerns with another Ottoman invasion and that Hungary controlled the traditional Serbian capital of Belgrade. These resulted in conflict with both Hungary and the Ottomans almost immediately. Now, George managed to patch things up with the Hungarians by offering them more territory and was once again their vassal. In the meantime, the Ottomans had taken significant territory in southern Serbia, forcing George to become their vassal and giving them considerable tribute once again. Though not until Sigismund had sent an army to help and nearly died in an Ottoman attack trying to prevent this. And so, after all the fighting and the death of Stefan, Serbia was in the same position as before, serving two masters, only now with less territory and less prestige. Also at this moment, Hungary had a border with the Ottomans for the first time. Now, this event kicked off years of fortress building and reinforcement at that border, as both states were very paranoid about being invaded by the other. And so that's where I'm going to end things today, with Serbia weakened and Hungary actively fighting to defend its neighboring buffer states of Serbia and Wallachia against the Ottomans. The Ottomans were at war with Venice and expanding into Anatolia, 
though I can't find many details about what they were up to in Anatolia. Murad II was still a very young man, so it remains to be seen what kind of sultan he will become. Now, it was hoped that peace could come after the Ottoman Civil War, but we are now 15 years from that time, and there's no peace in sight. Next time, we'll see where this all goes. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, uspech, or in English, good luck.